Hi, I'm Alex. Welcome to Reading Poorly. Twelve Years a Slave, Chapter 3. Before I get started, I do want to mention, uh, hopefully I figure out a rather succinct way of saying this, uh, but um, this, uh, this book is not listed as explicit. I don't intend to list it as explicit unless there's a particularly, you know, raunchy um, chapter or something. Um, but I would still say that it's uh, listener discretion advised. Uh, it is about slavery. It is not going to be pretty always. Uh, in fact, it's probably rarely going to be pretty. Um, and we are just now getting into the point uh, where our narrator, Solomon Northrop, um, is enslaved. So it's probably going to get pretty uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable for me, I know. And um, I kind of want it to be uncomfortable uh, for listeners. Now, um, if you can't handle it, go back and listen to my other stuff. There's, I have over a year worth of content um, at this point, four other books. Um, and uh, yeah, th this one's going to last a while. It has, it has a few chapters, but um, I... I, inv I invite you to have a hard time with this with me. Which has kind of always been the case. It's just been different thises. So, anyway. Twelve Years a Slave. Chapter 3. Some three hours elapsed, uh, during, which I, er, during which time I remained seated on the low bench, absorbed in painful meditations. At length I heard the crowing of a cock, and soon a distant rumbling sound as of carriages hurrying through the streets, came to my ears, and I knew that it was day. No ray of light, however, penetrated my prison. Finally, I heard footsteps immediately overhead, as of someone walking to and fro. It occurred to me then that I must be in an underground apartment, and the damp, moldy, moldy with a U, um, odors of the place confirmed the supposition. The noise above continued for at least an hour when, at last, I heard footsteps approaching from without. A key rattled in the lock. Um, a strong door swung back upon its hinges, admitting a flood of light, and two men entered and stood before me. It must have been like a cellar door. Um, because, you know, the noise above, um, and then footsteps approaching from without, and the, you know, the door swung back and there was already light so at first i was picturing this as like you know like a barn door or something but there'd be there'd be a lot more light leaking um so um he's underground like he said so and if yeah and if he's underground and the door opens and there's light then yeah so it must be a cellar door um and two men entered and stood before me one of them was a large powerful man 40 years of age perhaps <laughs> but not Brown or Hamilton, 40 years of age, perhaps, with dark chestnut-colored hair, slightly interspersed with gray. His face was full, his complexion flush, his features grossly coarse, expresses, expressive of nothing but cruelty and cunning. He was about 5 feet 10 inches high, of full habit, and without prejudice, I must be allowed to say, uh, was a man whose whole appearance was sinister and repugnant. His name was James H. Birch, B-U-R-C-H, as I learned afterwards, a well-known slave dealer in Washington, and then, or lately, connected in business as a partner with Theophilus Freeman, ironic name, of New Orleans. 
the person who accompanied him was a simple lackey named Ebenezer Redburn. <laughs> I'm thinking of Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, or, oh, come Isn't there a VeggieTales character named Ebenezer? I don't know. Who acted merely in capacity of turnkey. Both of these men still live in Washington, or did at the time of my return through that city from slavery in January last. The light admitted through the open door enabled me to observe the room in which I was confined. It was about twelve foot, twelve feet square. The walls of solid with uh, the walls of solid masonry. The floor was of heavy plank. There was one small window crossed with great iron bars, with an outside shutter securely fastened. An iron-bound door led into an adjoining cell or vault, wholly destitute of windows, or any means of admitting light. The furniture of the room in which I was consisted of the wooden bench on which I sat, an old-fashioned dirty box above, and besides these, in either cell, there was neither bed nor blanket nor any other thing whatever. The door, through which Birch and Radburn entered, led through a small passage, up a flight of steps into a yard, there we go, surrounded by a brick wall ten or twelve feet high, immediately in rear of a building of the same width as itself. The yard extended uh, rearward from the house about thirty feet. Uh, in one part of the wall there was a strongly iron door, opening into a narrow covered passage leading along one side of the house into the street. The doom of the colored man upon whom the door leading out of that narrow passage closed was sealed. The top of the wall supported one end of a roof, which ascends inwards, forming a kind of open shed. Underneath the roof, uh, there was a crazy loft all round. What? Yeah, oh, yeah, there was a crazy loft all round where slaves, if so disposed, might sleep at night, or in inclement weather seek shelter from the storm. It was like a farmer's barnyard in most respects, save it was so constructed that the outside world could never see the human cattle that were herded there. I am picturing a scene, not a specific scene, but um, a building and, um, you know, architecture um, out of Assassin's Creed 3. I think I've mentioned Assassin's Creed games um, before at some point in the podcast. Maybe. I know I've mentioned video games because of Alice. But, um, yeah, Assassin's Creed 3 is set in um, colonial America, uh, pre-United States. And um, I can't remember if it gets to the Constitution. Um, I know it gets... Like the civil, not the civil, the Revolutionary War is finished. Uh, but I'm not sure if it gets um, through uh, all the way to the Constitution uh, and Washington uh, becoming president. Maybe it does. But anyway, um, it probably does now that I think of it. But um, anyway, so it's, you know, 80 ish years uh, before this. So a lot of the the architecture, the scenery would probably be pretty similar. Um, anyway, <laughs> you know, comparing it to a video, not comparing, but, uh, alluding to a video game while thinking of this. I know, uh, the building to which the yard was attached was two stories high fronting on, uh, one of the public streets of Washington. It's outside presented only the appearance of a quiet private residence. A stranger looked 
looking at it, would never have dreamed of its exorable uses. Um, strange as it may seem, within plain sight of this same house, looking down from its commanding height upon it, was the capital. The voices of patriotic representatives boasting of freedom and equality and ra the rattling of poor slaves' chains almost commingled. A slave pen within the very shadow of the capital. Oh, sorry. A slave pen within the very shadow of the capital. There's an exclamation point there. Oh, and then a time-lapsey thing. Doo -doo 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 -doo. Such is a correct description as it was in, er, in 18... I did it again. 1841 of Williams's slave pen in Washington, in one of the cellars of which I found myself so unaccountably confined. Well, my boy, how do you feel now? Said Birch, as he entered through the open door. I replied that I was sick and inquired that... that and inquired the cause of my imprisonment. He answered that I was his slave, that he had bought me, and that he was about to send me to New Orleans. I asserted, aloud and boldly, that I was a free man, a resident of Saratoga, where I had a wife and children who were also free, and that my name was Northrop. I complained bitterly of the strange treatment I had received, and uh, threatened upon my liberation to have satisfaction for the wrong. He denied that I was free with an emphatic oath, or and with an emphatic oath, declared that I came from Georgia. Hmm. Again and again, I asserted that I, er, I asserted I was no man's slave and insisted upon taking off my chains at once. He endeavored to hush me, as if he feared my voice would be overheard, but I would not be silent and denounced the authors of my imprisonment, whoever they might be, as unmitigated villains. Finding he could not quiet me, he flew into a towering passion with blasphemous oaths he called me a black liar a runaway from georgia and every other profane and vulgar epithet that the most uh, indecent fancy could conceive during this time radburn was standing silently by his business was to oversee this human or rather inhuman stable receiving slaves feeding and whipping them at the rate of two shillings a head per day Turning to him, but almost said Butch, Birch ordered the paddle and cat o' nine tails to be brought in. He disappeared, and in a few moments he returned with these instruments of torture. The paddle, as it is termed in slave beating parlance, or at least the one with which I first became acquainted, and of which I now speak, was a piece of hardwood board, eighteen or twenty inches long, molded to the shape of an old fashioned pudding stick old-fashioned pudding stick pudding like the dessert but probably not what he's talking about or ordinary or or as an oar the flattened portion which is about the size of or in circumference of two open hands was bored with a small auger in numerous places the cat was a large rope of many strands the strands unraveled and a knot tied at the extremity of each I am reminded of, um, I may have mentioned it before, the uh, fantasy series Redwall, which, um, of which all of the characters are animals, um, largely mice, uh, some squirrels and rabbits and stuff. Um, 
but there is one particular book and one particular character named Mariel of Redwall. And Mariel, at, um, at one point, well, at the beginning, she washes ashore, and I think she has amnesia and stuff, and she wakes up, and she's being attacked by a bird or something. And she grabs a nearby rope with a knot, a nasty knot at the end of it, and she starts smacking the, the seagulls with it. And she ends up calling it her gull whacker. Um, and that is her, like, signature weapon. You know, everyone else's swords and bows and stuff. And she has this piece of rope with a nasty knot at the end. <laughs> I'm reminded of that. Um, pleasantly, though, I'm pretty sure that it, this will get very unpleasant very quickly. Um, as soon as these formidable whips appeared, I was seized by both of them and roughly div divested of my clothing. My feet, as had been, has been stated, were fastened to the floor. Drawing me over the bench, face downwards, Radburn placed his heavy foot upon the fetters between my wrists, holding them painfully to the floor. With the paddle, Birch commenced beating me. Blow after blow was inflicted upon my naked body. Oh, and my heart is sinking already. When his unrelenting arm grew tired... Uh, he stopped and asked if I still insisted I was a free man. I did insist upon it, and then, and then the blows were renewed, faster and more energetically, if possible, than before. When again tired, he would repeat the same question, and receiving the same answer, continue his cruel labor. Um, oh, yeah, when again tired, there we go, he would repeat the same question, receiving the same answer, continued his cruel labor. All this time, the incarnate devil was uttering most fiendish oaths. At length, the paddle broke, leaving the useless handle in his hand. Still, I would not yield. All his brutal blows could not force from my lips the foul lie that I was a slave. Casting madly on the floor the handle of the broken paddle, he seized the rope. This was far more painful than the other. I struggled with all my power, but it was in vain. I prayed for mercy, but my prayer was only answered with um, imprecations and with stripes i thought i must die beneath the lashes of the accused brute or the accursed brute even now the flesh crawls upon my bone mine too as i recall the scene and i was not there um i was all on fire my sufferings i can compare to nothing else than the burning agonies of hell that's weird heading on this page i'm just gonna skip it at last I became silent to his repeated questions. I would make no reply. In fact, I was becoming almost unable to speak. Still he plied the lash without stint upon my poor body, until it seemed that the lacerated flesh was stripped from my bones at, at every stroke. A man with a particle of mercy in his soul would not have beaten even a dog so cruelly. At length, Radburn said that it was useless to whip me any more, that I would be sore enough. Thereupon, Birch desisted uh yeah birch desisted saying with an admonitory shake of his fist in my face and hissing the words uh through his firm set teeth that if i ever dared to utter again that i was entitled to my freedom that i had been kidnapped or anything whatever of the kind the cast castignation i had just received was nothing in comparison with what would follow wow that was a long multi commad sentence thereupon i'm gonna repeat it thereupon birch desisted saying uh, with an admonitory shake of of his fist in my face and the hissing of words through his firm set teeth 
that if that if ever I dared to utter again that I was entitled to my freedom, that I had been kidnapped, or anything whatever of the kind, the castigation I had just received was nothing in comparison to or with what would follow. That sounded like it was written by Lewis Carroll. A, a, a demented Lewis Carroll, but, well, differently demented Lewis Carroll. But... <laughs> Um, he swore that he would either conquer or kill me with these consolatory words. The fetters were taken from my wrists, my feet still remaining fastened to the ring. The shutter of the little barred window, which had been opened was again closed and going out, locking the great door behind him. I was left in the darkness as before in an hour, perhaps two, my heart leaped in my throat as the key rattled in the door again. I, who had been so lonely and who had longed so ardently to see someone, I cared not who, now shuddered at the thought of a man's, of man's approach. A human face was fearful to me, especially a white one. Radburn entered, bringing with him on a tin plate a piece of shriveled fried pork, a slice of bread, and a cup of water. He asked me how I felt and remarked that I had received a pretty sore flogging. A pretty severe flogging. He remonstrated with me against the prop the uh, propriety of asserting my freedom. In rather a patronizing and confidential manner, he gave it to me as his advice that the less I said on that subject, the better it would be for me. The man evidently endeavored to appear kind, whether touched at the sight of my sad condition or with the view of silencing on my part any further expression of my rights it was not unnecessary or it was not necessary now to conjecture no oh, it is not necessary now to conjecture he unlocked the fetters from my ankles opened the shutters of the little window and departed leaving me again alone by this time i had become stiff and sore my body was covered with blisters and it was with great pain and difficulty that i could move um, from the window, I could observe nothing but the roof resting on the adjacent wall. At night, I laid down upon the damp, hard floor without any pillow or covering whatever. Uh, punctually, twice a day, uh, Radburn came in with his pork and bread and water. I had but little appetite, though I tormented with continual thirst. My wounds would not permit me to remain but a few minutes in any one position, so sitting or standing or moving slowly around, I passed the days and nights. I was heart-sick and discouraged. Thoughts of my family, of my wife and children, continually occupied my mind. When sleep overpowered me, I dreamed of them, dreamed I was again in Saratoga, that I could see their faces or hear their voices calling me. Awakening from the pleasant phantasms of sleep to the bitter realities around me, I could groan, or I could but groan and weep. Still, my spirit was not broken. I indulged the anticipation of escape, and that speedily. It was impossible, I reasoned, that men could be so unjust as to detain me as a slave when the truth of my case was known. Birch, ascertaining I was no runaway from Georgia, would certainly let me go. Huh. Uh, though suspicions of Brown and Hamilton were not unfrequent, I could not reconcile myself to the idea that they were instrumental in my imprisonment. Surely they would seek me out, and w or they would deliver me from thraldom. Alas, I had uh, not then learned the measure of, quote, man's inhuman inhumanity to man, nor what limitless extent of wickedness he will go uh, for the love of gain. In the course of several days, the outer door was thrown open, allowing me to, or the, 
allowing me the liberty of the yard. Uh, there I found three slaves, one of them a lad of ten years, the others young men of about twenty and twenty-five. I was not long in forming an acquaintance and learning their names and the particulars of their history. The eldest was a colored man named Clemens Ray. He had lived in Washington, had driven a hack, and worked in a livery stable uh, there for a long time. He was very intelligent and f very intelligent and fully comprehended his situation. The thought of going south overwhelmed him with grief. Birch had purchased him a few days before and had placed him there until such time as he was ready to send him to the New Orleans market. For him, I learned for the or from him I learned for the first time that I was in Williams's slave pen, a place I had never heard of previously. He described to me the uses for which it was designed. I repeated to him the particulars of my unhappy story, but he could only give me the consolation of his sympathy. He also advised me to be silent henceforth on the subject of my freedom, for, knowing the character of Birch, he assured me that it would only uh, be attended with renewed whipping. The next eldest was named John Williams, not to be confused with the owner of the slave pen, I'm sure. He was raised in Virginia, not far from Washington. Birch had taken him in payment for or in payment of a debt, and he constantly entertained the hope that his master would redeem him, a hope that was subsequently realized. The lad was a sprightly child uh, that answered to the name of Randall. Most of the time he was playing about the yard, but occasionally would cry, calling for his mother and wondering when she would come. His mother's absence seemed to be the great and only grief in his little heart. He was too young to realize his condition, and when the memory of his mother was not in his mind, he amused us with his pleasant pranks. At night, Ray, Williams, and the boy slept in the loft of the shed while I was locked in the cell. Finally, we were each provided with blankets, such as are used upon horses, the only bedding I was allowed to have for... Twelve years afterwards, Ray and Williams asked me many questions about New York, how colored people were treated there, how they could have homes and families of their own, and none to disturb and oppress them, and Ray, especially, sighed continually for freedom. Such conversations, however, uh, were not in the hearing of Birch or the keeper Redburn, Radburn. Aspirations such as these would have brought down the lash upon our backs. Um... So, the connection of New Orleans and then the name Ray, of course, makes me think of Ray the lightning bug from um, The Princess and the Frog. Uh, I think his whole name is Raymond or something, but um, played by, by the way, the great Jim Cummings, who's in like every Disney movie or every animated Disney movie, and then some. Um, uh, he's Darkwing Duck, and lots of other things. <laughs> um, oh, I'm trying to think of oh, because he he has kind of a, a gravelly voice um, that's kind of distinct, but he he can change it. But if you know it's him, like it's like oh yeah, that's totally Jim Cummings. I can't think of he has a couple of you know major roles. Um, not, I mean, Ray's a good supporting role, but, um, like Darkwing Duck, he's the star. Um, but he has a couple of, oh, Winnie the Pooh, the, the new, like Ewan McGregor, McGregor. 
Ewan McGregor movie. Um, uh, what Christopher Robin, he plays Winnie the Pooh and I think maybe Eeyore. I can't remember. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, moving on. Um, now I'm trying to think of the, the name of the star that Ray was in love with in the princess and the frog, like Evangeline or something like that. Okay. Okay. Moving on for real. It is necessary in this narrative in order to present a full and truthful statement of all of the princi- all the principal events in the history of my life and to per- portray the institution of slavery, which is capitalized, as I have seen and known it, to speak of well-known places and of many persons who are yet living. I am, and always was, an entire stranger in Washington and its vicinity, aside from Birch and Radburn, knowing no man there except as I have heard of them through my enslaved companions. That I am about to say, if, or what I am about to say, if false, can can be easily contradicted. Okay. (laughs) I remained in Williams's slave pen about two weeks. I, I feel like he's saying it could be easily contradicted, um, but you know, they tried to fact check it. So maybe it hasn't been contradicted. That's why it's still in the book. I don't know. Um, I remained in Williams's slave pen about two weeks. The night previous to my departure, a woman was brought in weeping bitterly and leading by the hand, a little child. They were Randall's mother and half sister. On meeting them, he was overjoyed, clinging to her dress, kissing the child, and exhibiting every demonstration of delight. The mother also clasped, clasped, I think I've read that at least one other time during this book, clasped him in her arms, embraced him tenderly, and gazed at him fondly through her tears, calling him by many an endearing name. Emily, the child, was seven or eight years old, of light complexion, and with a face of admirable beauty, her hair fell in curls around her neck. While the style and richness of her dress and the neatness of her whole appearance indicated that she had been brought up in the midst of midst of wealth. She was a sweet child indeed. The woman who was arrayed in silk with rings upon her fingers and golden ornaments suspended from her ears. The woman also was arrayed in silk. Okay. I was like, who did not make sense there? The woman also was arrayed in silk with rings upon her fingers and golden ornaments suspended from her ears. Her hair and her air, not her hair, her air and manners, the correctness and propriety of her language all showed evidently that she had sometimes stood above the common level of a slave. She seemed to be amazed at finding herself in such a place as that. It was pain. Uh, plainly a sudden and unexpected turn of fortune that had brought her, her there. Filling the air with her complainings, she was hustled with the children and myself into a, into the cell. I wondered if they were being enslaved. Oh, she was just coming to visit for some reason. That seemed weird. Language can convey but an inadequate impression of the lamentations to which she gave incessant utterance. Throwing herself... That is an interesting sentence. I'm going to say it again. Language can convey but an inadequate impression of the lamentations to which she gave incessant utterance. (laughs) Oh, the extent to which she complained. I mean, she had good reason to complain. I'm not making fun of her for complaining. 
throwing herself upon the floor and encircling the children in her arm. He just said it very fancy, that's all. She poured forth such touching words as only material love and kindness can suggest. They nestled closely to her, um, as if there, um, They nestled closely to her as if there only uh, was there any safety or protection. So the first there, as if there only, um, it's italicized. That's why I kind of tried to emphasize it there. Uh, was there any safety or protection? At last they slept, their heads resting upon her lap. While they slumbered, she smoothed the hair back from their little foreheads and talked to them all night long. She had called them her little, or she called them her little darlings. Her sweet babes, poor innocent things that knew not the misery they were destined to endure. Soon they would have no mother to comfort them. They would be taken from her. What would become of them? Oh, she could not live away from her little Emmy and her dear boy. They had always been good children and had such loving ways. It would break her heart, God knew, she said, if they were taken from her. And yet she knew they meant to sell them, and maybe they would be separated and could never see each other any more. It was enough to melt a heart of stone to listen to the pitiful expressions that are of that desolate and distracted mother. Her name was Eliza. Another Hamilton thing. Okay. Her name was Eliza, and this was the story of her life, as she afterwards related it. And I also... The, the, the Broadway thing does not stop, because I immediately thought of Story of My Life from Shrek the Musical. Story of My Life something. I can't remember the rest, but... She was the slave of Elisha Berry, a rich man. Uh, a rich man. Um, Elisha does not sound like a man's name, but it, I'm not sure how to pronounce that otherwise. Um, Elisha, maybe? Like like Eli with a shah after it? I don't know. Elisha Berry, a rich man living in the neighborhood of Washington. She was born, I think she said, on his plantation. Years before, he had fallen into dissipated habits and quarreled with his wife. In fact, soon after the birth of Randall, they separated. Leaving his wife and daughter in the house they had always occupied, he erected a new one nearby on the estate. Oh, to be able to afford that. Um, into his house he brought Eliza, and on condition of her living with him, she and her children were to be emancipated. She resided with him there nine years, with servants to attend upon her, and provided with every comfort and luxury of life. Emily was his child. That's why she was lighter skinned, I guess. And there's an exclamation point. Emily was his child. Something. Finally, her young mistress, um, who had always remained with her mother at the homestead, married a Mr. Jacob Brooks. At length, for some cause, as I gathered from her relation, beyond Barry's control... A division of his property was made. She and her children fell to the share of Mr. Brooks. During the nine years she had lived with Barry, in consequence of the position she was compelled to occupy, she and Emily had become the object of Mrs. Barry and her daughter's hatred and dislike. Barry himself uh, she represented as a man of naturally a kind heart, who always promised her that she would have her freedom, and who she had no doubt would grant it to her then, if it uh, were only in his power. He could have done it for nine years. As soon as they thus came into the possession and control of the daughter, it became, 
very manifest they would not live long together. The sight of Eliza seemed to be odious to Mrs. Brooks. Either or Neither could she bear to look upon the child, half-sister, and beautiful as she was. The day she was led into the pen, Brooks had brought her from the estate into the city, under pretense that the time had come when her free papers were to be executed, of course, in fulfillment of her master's promise. Of, of course they were going to lie about that. Elated at the prospect of immediate liberty, she decked herself in little Emmy in their best apparel and accompanied them with, or accompanied him with a joyful heart. On their arrival in the city, instead of being baptized into the family of Freeman, she was delivered to the traitor Birch. Again, I almost said Butch. Um, the paper that was executed was a bill of sale. The hope of years was blasted at a moment. From the height of most exulting happiness to the utopia or to utopia to the utmost depths of wretchedness she had that day descended no wonder that she wept and filled the pen with wailings and expressions of heartrending woe eliza is now dead oh well get right to the point far up the red river where it pours its waters sluggishly uh, through the unhealthy lowlands of louisiana she rests in the grave at last the only resting place of the poor slave uh, how all her fears were realized how she mourned day and night and never would be comforted how as she predicted her heart did indeed break with the burden of maternal sorrow will be seen as the narrative proceeds oh so her kids die or one of her kids dies all right well if you like what you hear or are made pleasantly uncomfortable i don't know that that's the right way to say it but <laughs> um feel free to subscribe how about this if you would like to listen to more uh feel free to subscribe if you have not already available on every major platform that i'm aware of if you feel like letting me know that i am not on one of the platforms that you use you can reach out to me or you can reach out to me for whatever other reason preferably constructive um rather than you know harassing or something um you can find me on twitter at reading poorly you can email me reading comma poorly at gmail.com that's r-e-a-d-i-n-g-c-o-m-m-a-p-o-o-r-l-y not punctuated at gmail.com um uh, review on itunes rate and review i should say um or uh, other platforms uh, as appropriate and um yeah i think i'm gonna not ramble too much this time around so thank you for listening this long to me reading poorly